That's Debatable is sponsored by MB&G. MB&G are specialists in the esoteric world of vehicle and furniture warranty insurance, delivering quite marvellous customer service, prompt claims payment, and a highly developed understanding of how to deliver these products in a way that is both compliant with the regulations and attractive to customers. And welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. Hello, Tom. Hello, everyone. Tom, how was your weekend? Uh, ben, I had a great weekend because, of course, as you well know, Saturday is one of the most important days in the calendar, the 21st of October. Oh, Trafalgar Day. It's Trafalgar Day, yeah. 1805. And um, it's, uh, as I talked to my friends about it, it's one of those battles that established... Britain's naval supremacy for at least the next 100 years. It had more heavy artillery, more heavy guns. I don't know if artillery can go on boats, but guns certainly do, than Waterloo 10 years later, which I didn't know. A ship of the line at that time would have more guns than, than most armies would. Um, you know, even, even a relatively small ship, you know, 74-gun ship of the line, mm. an immense amount of firepower. Mm. Um, yeah, big day. Big day. Big day and that tactic that Nelson used of driving his boats. I don't think you drive boats, but he, uh, he, he, he slammed his boats the wrong way into the French fleet and then turned the guns on them from the other side. Ah, oh, what, what a tactician he was. What an absolute genius. One of our greatest Englishmen. And every house should have a Trafalgar room, I think, where you can <laughs> light a candle on the 21st of October. I'm sure every house does. Does yours, Ben? We're building an extension to accommodate one, Tom, if the, if the answer. Uh, never mind manoeuvres, just go straight at them. That's the line. Go um, straight at them. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I have a slightly heretical view, actually. I, I think that Nelson is the oh. greatest Englishman who ever lived, um, beating Churchill. Is that heretical? Yeah, I think most people would say Churchill, wouldn't they? Well, obviously, many people now um, are attempting to cancel Churchill, but um, I mm. think Nelson pips him to the post. That's interesting. Because he, he, he enables the, the 19th century um, and the British Empire complete dominance and superiority and hegemony. Yeah. So whereas Churchill, for, for very uh, moral and correct reasons, then sacrifices that to defeat Nazi Germany. So very worth yeah. doing. But I, I think narrowly Nelson is the greater of the two. But of course Trafalgar Square wasn't really a place where, um, shall we say, Trafalgar Day seemed to be the, the focus this week. <laughs> I was. Uh, I said. I texted you, Tom, last night, didn't I? Saying I was uh, spitting blood over the mm. scenes over, over the weekend. And a moment ago, just before we went on air, we were saying that if you are somebody who gets your news from BBC six o'clock every day, you might well have no idea what we're talking about, because the BBC. And we'll come on to this, I think, in, in a few minutes, perhaps. Um, but the BBC, as we've been saying now for some time, and I think as many people will not be surprised by at all. Um, gives a very, very selective, very partial view of these events. And the protests, the pro-Palestinian protests, were marred by footage you can see circulating on social media of people calling for jihad, people waving banners, uh, calling for Muslim armies. And then the response of the police to this has been, shall we say, somewhat out of kilter with their treatment of gender-critical feminists or the any number of people who've been arrested for saying or uh, posting on social media far more trivial things than calls for holy war. I think you sent me an article that listed multiple things that you now need to worry about uh, more than calling for jihad on the streets of, of London. Um, I mean, in that list, um, I won't go through all of them, uh, but silently praying uh, is now is now more. You need to worry more about that. Uh, misgendering someone in public, misgendering someone online, and it's just protesting against the murder of women. It's just the sort of news items that we've seen of the last three, four, five, six, seven years are are relate to issues of speech, and there are all sorts of views on that, of course, but on on each of those. But you need to worry more about the uh, the police um, 
when you say and do those things, then if you go to the streets of London and start um, crying out things that are really quite threatening, and and the Metropolitan Police are now are now theologians, I think as well. They they've interpreted the word jihad, which is, has multiple facets to it. Um, it has a spiritual um, uh, element to it. They've interpreted it to mean um, uh, it it is that it is that it's a peaceful thing. But when you see, and I think it was a uh, an organization that is banned in parts of the world, uh, and a large part is Hizbut Tahrir. So it's banned yeah. in most Arab countries. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that was the protest where that was happening. Uh, the Metropolitan Police have taken to Twitter, or X, and they were saying, as you, as you just pointed out, Tom, that the word jihad has a number of meanings. That's a direct quote, which is true. It does mean inner struggle as well as holy war. But I think the public have enough wit to discern that if somebody is calling for a crusade against child poverty, that means something quite different to somebody eight or nine hundred years ago calling for a crusade in the holy land and just so that if somebody uh, in a spiritual setting is talking about that inner struggle against sin and uses the arabic word jihad it has a very different meaning to somebody who is on a on a protest like the one we saw on saturday surrounded by people waving islamic battle flags and people calling for muslim armies the context completely makes clear the meaning of the word in in that protest so it's completely bizarre that the metropolitan police incredibly sinister i should say it's not just bizarre it's incredibly sinister that the police is so willing to be strong against the weak and weak against the strong and that there is this immensely forceful response to the autistic teenage girl you mentioned who said that a female police officer looked like her lesbian nana and for that we saw the footage, was it a couple of months ago? It was quite recent, wasn't it? It was quite of, recent, yeah. Of a, yeah, of a huge number of police officers barging into this home to try and drag this girl away. And so we have this situation now where, where the police, as we've talked about in previous episodes, Tom, are really just concerned with preventing inter-community tension. It's, it, 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 it's no longer the case that the law is applied consistently it seems to me that your right to speech and your right to protest is directly linked with how much backlash your community can generate if the police treat you harshly and i as i was thinking about that we've mentioned a few times this privileged class i'm thinking about what are the consequences of that and the consequences of that are are profoundly worrying for any citizen of the united kingdom uh, justice is no longer uh, served at the level of the individual citizen. Uh, and some of those groups, some of those groups that don't get the privilege uh, from the police officers are left in genuine fear. And unfortunately, they're not only left in genuine fear, they're left in justified fear. You know, I felt that uh, there, was a, there was a counter-protest on the Saturday scheduled to be um, a pro-Israeli protest, and that was ultimately cancelled. Um, it was moved initially, uh, and then the police strongly advised that it be that it be shut down because they they feared. Now, that good good public safety reasons for that, I'm sure. However, um, I felt uh, at the end of Saturday that the community that would have been feeling full of fear on the streets of London uh, would have been the Jewish community. Uh, and without a doubt, that that has something that has come out clear into Clarion Call. There is genuine fear uh, amongst London's Jewish community and and further afield in the United Kingdom. Uh, and because of this fear and favour, it's justified. All citizens are equal, but some citizens seems to be more more equal than others. Um, and I think the police now have a real uphill struggle if they are to win back. Uh, the, um, uh, the 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 confidence of the Jewish community. There's a huge uphill struggle that they're going to have to go through. If 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 the Jewish community are watching Saturday and saying, "My goodness me, I could have been under attack from what was being said on the streets of London," um, and and I think that's that's the challenge for the police. I hope this doesn't sound like it's said in in the heat of emotion, but I think. This Saturday 
was the moment at which I and certainly other people seeing these clips circulating on social media concluded that the Metropolitan Police is fundamentally, fundamentally and irreparably broken and untrustworthy and that their priorities and their approach are so far removed from what our times call for. Um, and of course, there are problems with policing across the United Kingdom when it comes to freedom of speech. And there was a, another clip circulating from a different protest where uh, men were threatened with arrest for waving St. George's flag. And there are so many, as in the article that you mentioned by Ben Sixsmith in the Critic magazine, 12 Things More Arrestable Than Calling for a Jihad. And I would go and read that in the Critic. Um, the police do not have a uniform or consistent approach. And this was brought home on Saturday. And I, I think it's irreparable. Um, I, I don't, I just do not see how that can be fixed. And it's completely improbable to me that after the non-crime hate incidents um, and all of the other attacks on freedom of speech that the police have perpetrated, that they have now become free speech absolutists for people calling for jihad on the streets of London. Now, I think listeners and members of the Free Speech Union will have a range of different views. There is a completely coherent, absolutist free speech argument that that call should be allowed. And indeed, there's a practical argument for saying that, because if you allow people to make clear their prejudices, their hatefulness, their want to attack and destroy democratic society, then at least we all know how much trouble we're really in. So there is a practical argument for that purist ideological view. Um, but in every other instance, in every other issue where that's been put to the test, that has not been the view of the police until Saturday. And I, I would just underline what we said last week, which is we're not talking here about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We're not talking about the substance of the issues. We're not seeking to take a side. We're just trying to say, look, this is how speech is playing out on the streets of London this is the effect it's having on people. This is the comparison with a very low bar in other situations. And I was driven back to try and analyze the situation as to how a group has managed to gain this, this sort of uh, precedence over other groups. So, so obviously some have louder voices than others on the streets of London. How's that happened? And over what, it's clearly happened over a period of years. Um, and it took me back to George Orwell, not 1984. It took me back to, to Animal Farm, where, and I felt actually I could almost read a little bit from it, just as a sort of bit of, it's not story time, Ben, but um, there's just a paragraph where you start to see this privilege slowly emerge bit by bit. And the word, you know, it's, it was written in 1942, I think, and and during World War II, and you see um, the gaslighting before even that word was really in, in, in general use. And so the bit I was just going to read, a couple of paragraphs, is when Squealer, the pig, uh, is, is explaining to the animals that they need not worry. They need not worry. You've heard, you've heard then, comrades, he said, that we pigs now sleep in the beds of the farmhouse. And why not? You did not suppose surely that there was ever a ruling against beds. A bed merely means a place to sleep in. A pile of straw in a stall is a bed, properly regarded. The rule was against sheets, which are a human invention. We've removed the sheets from the farmhouse beds and sleep between blankets. And very comfortable beds they are too, but not more comfortable than we need, I can tell you, comrades, with all the brain work we have to do nowadays. You would not rob us of our repose, would you, comrades? You would not have us too tired to carry out our duties. Surely none of you want Farmer Jones back? And the animals reassure him on that point immediately. And when some days afterwards it is announced that from now on the pigs would get up an hour later in the mornings than the other animals, no complaint was made about that either. And so what you see there in that little piece is a snippet where um, uh, the animals or the, the, all, the, all the junior animals are slowly being put in their place as this new class emerges of animal over, over others with other privileges, new privileges, distinct privileges, when what was originally promised was we shall all be treated equally. And Norwell does it incredibly well in a sort of childlike use of language. And yet, 
um, it's so relevant to what we're seeing in the United Kingdom. And, and there's an original preface to the book as well, where he talks about this effect, this unique effect in the culture of Britain that we don't speak out when, when this is happening. We, culturally, we, we don't speak out against censorship and against uh, one group being, being, being treated differently to other groups. Um, so, yeah, I just felt that uh, it was a little bit of an extra layer to what we've talked about, about how these privileged groups come into being. Well, of course, you will now be cancelled for invoking pigs in a topic of Islam and Islamophobia. (laughs) It's animal farm, Uh, for goodness sake. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know that, but there will be people who write in. Um, Yeah, I mean, completely completely agree, of course. Um, I just... the, The other point for me is that... The, the, I, we've touched on this already, but the media reporting of what has gone on and the fact that the next morning, so Sunday morning, the morning of the 22nd, if you went to the BBC homepage, there was just no mention of this at all. And if you did a Google mm. search for the demonstrations, you could find it. But the BBC article had no mention whatsoever of his book to rear, no mention of the cause of jihad, no mention of the fact that the Met Police were being hounded on Twitter for bungling their communications and the handling of the situation um th- that had just been completely memory hold to use another piece of orwellian terminology it was absolutely nowhere to be found uh and this inconsistency whether you are a free speech absolutist or you're somebody who is pro free speech but draws slightly tighter limits than that whatever your philosophical view about this these incredibly complicated issues the fact that the media won't report on them properly and that you have to go to social media if you want to find out what's actually going on on the streets is a position that i think nobody would would relish and that goes back to the conversation we were having last week tom as well when we were talking about the uh, broadcast ecology and yeah. the sorry the week before last wasn't it and the uh, the threat to that ecosystem posed by gb news and talk TV, but I think the, the the BBC in particular over the last month has so spectacularly mucked this up by spreading misinformation about the bombing or the rocketing of the hospital in Gaza through the entire crisis, and now in these in the reporting of these protests. But but also Ben, you mentioned the, the hospital misinformation that that has led to uh, cancellation of diplomatic missions uh, to Tel yeah. Aviv. That has led to a level of fear going up uh, in the streets of capitals around the world, where there are uh, Jewish uh, um, uh, people living who who are feeling that extra notch of fear uh, because of that. And this BBC misinformation, like, you know, I'm in a, a flippant way, I could turn around and say, well, don't worry, we've got BBC Verify now, Ben. So none of this surely no. can happen. BBC Verify, trumpeted, trumpeted. And I actually went back and had a look at it. It describes itself as transparency in action, fact-checking, verifying video, countering disinformation, analysing data, explaining complex stories in the pursuit of truth. And you just breathe, you try and breathe at that point and, and say that the, the, the utter failure of the last two weeks um, makes that mm. look, it's an insult. It's an insult to awful. many communities in the United Kingdom to have that there, BBC. And we're all forced <clears> to pay for it. I'm, not, not, I'm going into a rant on the BBC now, but it's difficult not to. We're all forced to pay for this misinformation and this disinformation. Um, BBC does some very good stuff. Of course it does. It's a huge organisation. It's got some very talented journalists. It's got some very talented programme makers. But it's just let itself down so badly in in this last uh, 14 days. And it's not even, uh, you know, it's not, it can't be denied. And it's so serious. It's so serious. It's the most serious situation. Um, I wish it had done something I should have done something else wrong. Get get EastEnders terribly wrong. You know? I don't care about that. Get Doctor Who. Who who's the next Doctor Who? I don't care. Get that wrong. 
But if you're going to get a real-time piece of news that is, um, is so emotive, if you're going to get that wrong, um, you really have no business then um, talking about misinformation, disinformation, fact-checking, or any of the rest of it. You, you, you've lost your seat at the table for that in my book, I think. And it's such a sanctimonious way. I think I, there's just one final thing I would say on this topic for now, which is to quote from the October Declaration, which is a statement of solidarity with British Jews that has attracted about 10,000 signatures since it was launched last night. I expect it'll be many times that by the time you're listening to this. And I think this sums up where Tom, you and I are coming from. Yeah. And it says, while we respect the right of all groups to engage in peaceful protest, we urge the police to enforce the law without fear or favour. And I think on Saturday, that is the failure that we saw. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's perfectly worded. Perfectly worded. But there was another declaration, wasn't there, Ben, uh, that came out last mm. week? The Westminster Declaration. Very, I'm, I'm getting quite confused with the number of declarations. We said that October was a very busy month for uh, events, and it is. Free speech events last week is also a very busy month for uh, the publishing of declarations. So, Tom, the Westminster Declaration, open discourse is the central pillar of a free society. What was this all about? So the Westminster Declaration, um, again, has an, a really interesting list of journalists, authors, influencers. They come from the UK and the US, many of them, but also around the world. I mean, we've got Australia, we've got um, uh, uh, people from, from Canada. And what it's essentially saying is there is real concern about free speech uh, across the important... Um, the commanding heights, should we say, the cultural commanding heights. So we think of things like journalists and writers and uh, content producers. And they are, that the declaration is worrying that these, this interference, in effect, with the journalists and with um, people who take a different view is undermining the fundamental principles of representative representative democracy and a good example being the censorship industrial complex which we've we've talked about and the fact that this this undermining of free speech and free expression and this censorship um operates through quite subtle methods so in the declaration it talks about visibility filtering labeling manipulation of search engine results and then through deplatforming and flagging um, what the censors are doing is they're silencing lawful opinions on topics of national and international geopolitical importance. Um, and of course, a whole new industry has come up alongside this as the censorship uh, complex, industrial complex has come into being. The new industry is that of the fact checkers and the disinformation experts. But we don't know who the fact checkers are. We don't know who the, the disinformation experts are. And of course, they replace... Uh, what journalists used to do, which was actually establish values of debate and uh, intellectual inquiry. Um, so it's a very powerful statement. I think it's a very important statement. <coughs> after everything that's happened with Twitter, after everything that happened during the COVID-19 reality when alternative views were suppressed, when we see what's happened in our case data, we'll come on to that later, with people mm. with the wrong politics being shut down, I think it's very timely and very important. And I'll just quote one other thing from the de from the declaration, it's, um, which really kind of jumped out at me. And it was this, that in a democracy, no one has a monopoly over what is considered to be true. Rather, truth must be discovered through dialogue and debate. And we cannot discover truth without allowing for the possibility of error. We're allowed to get things wrong. And that's the scientific method as well. This whole phrase that really riles me up is follow the science. I don't know what that means. Because that sounds like the science is like the Pied Piper of Hamlin. And is this this individual you follow and it leads you to the truth. Whereas well, it's actually, handed down on sort of stone tablets and can never yeah, be changed. That's a yeah. better that's a better analogy, sort of coming down from the mountain. Um but the reality of the scientific method is that it questions. It questions and it debates and it doubts itself always. 
Um, even the hard science sciences, even the Newtonian mechanic laws of New Newton and the um, and Einsteinian relativity and quantum mechanics, even there, um, there are elements of that that are being rediscovered, corrected. Uh, the Big Bang, what happened in the first half a second, what happened in the first thousandth of a second, what happened in the first millionth of a second, is being, people are going back to it and having another look. And so even the hard scientists' sciences, follow the sciences is kind of meaningless. But then in the softer sciences, i.e. the data-driven social sciences or the data-driven, I mean, you know, even things like climate science, um, things are not, are not, Follow the science. I don't understand what that means. And, and I, I am from a scientific background. It, things have to be up for debate. And so I think this Westminster Declaration is very important and has a lot of important names attached to it, uh, making this point. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a good thing, I think. I, th I, I completely agree with your irritation at, at that phrase. It seems like the type of formula that would only be used by politicians and never by credible scientists. Mm. Um, and one point I would make that's not related to scientific inquiry, but particularly on the control of information, as we were just saying with the failures of the BBC over the last month, um, I just reiterate the importance of social media in communicating what is actually happening. Um, mm. Now, the downside to that, and Toby Young spoke to Jacob Rees-Mogg last week on GB News about this, about the very difficult question of whether uh, footage from or in the immediate aftermath of terror attacks should be circulating freely on social media and, and the rights of the victims' families and and so on. And it's a completely vexed and impossible question from that perspective. But I would say the thing that settles it for me is that only by showing these atrocities in their full aspect, in the full horror of what of what has happened, um, can you really communicate and understand what's going on? And of course, that's not the type of thing that can be broadcast on a BBC News bulletin. I did see that the Telegraph had given readers the option to see yeah. some pretty disturbing, horrendously gruesome images. Um, <clears throat> but I, I do think actually it is important to understand what's going on. And for that to happen, you need social media and you need to have the open source intelligence community and you need to have all of these people who are operating beyond the tight confines of newsrooms and editorial broadcasting yeah. guidelines and so on and so i think that's a real that that is an essential part of the if i can use the word ecosystem again the information ecosystem of understanding gathering digesting news what's going on so I think the scientific point is, is very powerful, but I would add that as well, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I think the, uh, the, the, the words that are used to shut people down who dissent are incredibly effective. Um, no one wants disinformation accusations coming their way or misinformation or being unscientific is, is, is essentially saying you're from the Stone Age, you know, you, 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 you don't follow science. Um, and yet I'm always astonished that people don't push back on it and say, do you not know what the scientific method is? <laughs> do, do, do you not know how we discovered that the earth goes around the sun? It was, uh, it took, uh, it took Copernicus to stand against the world <laughs> and against, against the church and, and, um, to stand alone and so often it does require people to stand alone and i think people who have stood alone in the last year or five years uh, over which that this 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 tide of anti-free speech and uh, sort of wokey ways of looking at the world has swept through will look, be looked back on very favorably the people who've stood alone and and looked like idiots often looking like an idiot is not a bad thing um, and history will often be very kind to you. Um, and and that, I think, is something we would do well to remember. And the misinformation peddlers would do well to remember that it, it may well not look kindly on them. If it's not rank treason to recommend another podcast, I listened to a discussion on Unheard with Lord Sumption making 
these points. I guess into this over the weekend, uh, and he he said that he thought that his advocacy during uh, against lockdowns during COVID had probably not changed many minds, and had probably only cheered up people who already agreed with him. Um, but he was rightly praised and commended for being one of the very few people of his stature to just say, "Well, hang on a minute, are we sure about this?" Mm. Mm. Um, so I would recommend going to listen to that. But I mean, follow the science is such a, a rank logical fallacy. It's just an appeal to authority. Um, and it, yeah. it's so disconnected from the way in which scientific inquiry actually functions. So it's very welcome to see the Westminster Declaration and push back against that, some push back against the idea that um, information should be so tightly controlled and disseminated. It's just completely incompatible with understanding the world or advancing scientific knowledge. So... And it's the same well. in business. Um, it's the same in business. Don't, if someone says, trust me, trust me, take it on, yeah. take it on, you know, you, you know to, to, to run, run, yeah. run, run, Look, turn the other way around and run. Show me the data on the other hand. And that is, um, that's the way you can get a deal done. And, and, and you pick through the data and you challenge the assumptions underlying the business plan and you challenge, go down to the basis level uh, to to check it out, to check that it, to check what makes sense, and often you often you find something and walk away from the deal because you say I couldn't trust them. What they said was was really obvious, really clear, wasn't. And we've seen it again and again with the scientific models, um, you know, o- over the last few years, uh, that uh, they 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 don't work or they have uncertainty. They have uncertainty. Why are you not telling me about the uncertainty? Why are you not telling me about the ranges around these things? Um, and so, yeah, it really does rile me up. <laughs> so it's a great opportunity well, now with the Westminster Declaration to uh, to, <laughs> to talk about it and feel less riled up. And well, Tommy, you've given me an opportunity for an irresistible segue because you want to talk to I us about another data set, yeah. <laughs> which you teed me up very nicely. This is something we spoke about last week. Uh, and this is the truly gigantic quantity of data that the FSU has collected over the last three years of our operation about council culture, who's being cancelled, where they work, who's cancelling them, why they've been cancelled, what they've said, where they've said it, what they're talking about. And in the process of helping people deal with these situations, we have built up an incredibly complete picture of what Mm. is going on and what the cultural hotspots are. So Tom, you're our, our data guru. Do you want to talk us through where do you want to begin? I mean, do, do you want to sort of name the worst offenders for cancellation or do you want to talk about the issues that seem to get people in trouble? Well, I think we're in your hands. I mean, I've, I've had a look at the data. It's absolutely fascinating and a completely unique source of information, I would say. So uh, over yep. to you. Well, I I, um, I thought something you said last week about uh, this is possibly the best data set or the most complete data set on cancel culture that currently exists in the United Kingdom. I think I would be... I think you're right there. It, it's an astonishing uh, data set. And I would say when I first joined the Free Speech Union, I probably didn't appreciate just how um, important the data set is. What we do is we help people individually. And of course, that's that's one of our key pillars. But when you take that and put it all together, the picture it, it, it paints, we've had people in the media come and ask us questions. We have people... Uh, very close to government, come and ask us questions on the data, ask for examples, anecdotal examples. Obviously, we could only go with the examples that are in the public domain, um, but also for the bundled up um, statistical analysis of our data, which is just as powerful. I mean, we've now handled uh, nearly 2,250 cases, and every quarter, a good couple of hundred, two to three hundred uh, come in and and so we you know it's growing it's growing and it's growing and I'm on the lookout for the things within that data that that, that tell the story I mean one of the things that jumps out to me is how useful and I, I I'm sure you find it how useful it is we have our, our frequently asked questions our briefing notes our briefing documents on some of the more mm-hmm. frequent questions from members and we point people in the direction of them and often that's sufficient to help them so of uh, 171 cases where we've pointed where we handed people on to uh, either third parties um or to uh, another another uh, another sort of source of information in in 
sort of nearly 20% of those cases, we've handed it on to our own briefing notes and our own FAQ. So that's really, that's really powerful and shows the value of some of the things we're doing there. One thing that jumped out at me this quarter is that when we're talking about employment cases, we've seen a jump in the proportion of those employment cases that have actually involved dismissal. It may be a blip. It may just be this quarter. I'd be very interested to look at it in the last quarter of the year. But what does that mean? It means we're not seeing more employment cases, but it, but the ones we are seeing are that much more um, sort of a terminal, <laughs> literally terminal. Um, and we've always had dismissals in this realm, um, but to see mm. a jump in the proportion of the employment cases that in, entail dismissal, it just seems to me... I don't want to be pessimistic, but it, it, it's not what I want to see. Um, we would hope that we'd see fewer of them. But but it really it struck, struck me. And, and again, we're needed. We're needed to come in to fight for these people and if necessary to take it to employment tribunal. So that, that really, really jumped out. Um, we've also had two briefing notes over the summer, which we talked about in previous episodes. Um, uh, the B Corp. Uh, phenomenon and also carbon literacy training and we've incorporated that into our data and we're monitoring that as well already we've identified five at least five b corps in our data uh these are the the the, the, the slightly crazy organizations that really go in uh for um equity diversity inclusion plus justice uh and 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 we we don't expect to see a large number because they're not big employers so there are only few employees generally in these smaller companies so we wouldn't see expect these too many but we've got five already in our data and that does include um coots bank of course but the other the other point i would make uh, before sort of seeing what your what your thoughts are on it ben is um we do look at the the league table as well every quarter and see which police forces which universities and it's it's first of all it's fairly stable the the normal the top three durham cambridge and oxford uh, remain the top three this quarter uh, and and also the top three police forces pretty much remain the same the metropolitan police greater manchester police and police police scotland actually remain no shocks um, there no 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 exactly um so there's it, it it's quite stable um, but what I really think has sort of struck me in this, this, this quarter is that the top of all the lists is the NHS. And that relates to relates closely to what we've seen in a lot of our conversations, Ben. We've talked about the NHS's uh, transgender policies that it's been trying to roll out. And a lot of our members have come to us and said uh, they're not happy with it or they've fallen foul of it. Uh, but the NHS, uh, for want of a better phrase, is is captured. I mean, it, it's it's mm. beyond, it's above Twitter in our data for the number of cases we have. And Twitter has a lot of cases because because so many people find themselves blocked temporarily or or or, or for, forever. Um, so the NHS really is is spiking now. And of course, alongside that, we also have. Um, some of the regulators in the health industry um, that have that have come into play. So it's not just the NHS, but some of the health regulators also add on to the number on top of what we're seeing. So um, yeah. you know that that doesn't surprise us that we have so many medics and professionals in in the medical world coming coming and asking for our help. But um, I speak to so many NHS staff. I speak to so many NHS staff. I mean, if, it seems like most week most weeks I'm dealing with somebody doctor or nurse or whatever who's uh, who, who needs our help with something right there usually trans in the nhs yeah. it's usually an issue with trans but i was going to ask you what are the hot button issues at the moment that we are contending with most often because it it seemed like mm. in 2022 particularly um that was a year of very heavy casework for us dealing with people who'd spoken out about trans issues obviously 2020 uh, it was blm what what's the pattern looking like at the moment yeah. yeah well interestingly we uh we, we without wanting to 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 to, to bore our, our listeners I, I i slightly adjusted i took out one of the segments in our data which is conduct and behavior because sometimes sometimes we we we, we have um situations where it's not really a free speech issue underneath it it's maybe something in an employment situation where someone's been you know up in front of the hr beak um because of some alleged um, conduct issue, and and so we've got quite a slice of a slice of cases where where they're like that. So we took those out of the data because I've really focused in pure free speech um, cases, mm. uh, pure free speech cases, 
And do you know what? It's really stable. It's really stable between 2022 and year to date 2023. But the hot button issue is transgender, which is ne- which is nearly yeah. when you take out those those other cases, nearly 40 percent of our pure free speech um, cases, nearly 40%, so four in 10. And I don't think that would be a surprise to you, Ben. We, we, we thought it might no. be slowing down. I think a couple of quarters ago, we thought we might be might have passed a peak. Uh, we've had so many wins, actually, in this area. Um, but it remains high. It remains at nearly 40%, well, 39%. Um, so, what, what's yeah. that in terms of, of raw numbers? Is that sort of 800 or something, 800 cases? Uh, yeah, that's right. Let me just uh, check. Yeah. You're asking a mathematician. You know, we're not very good at arithmetic on the fly. <laughs> <laughs> I say again, this is a Cambridge maths graduate who's trying to work out 40% of 2,250. I'm making it 900. I make it 900, okay. but, I, but 900. I reserve the yeah. right to get my, my arithmetic wrong because I'm a mathematician yeah. and mathematicians can't add anything up. Um, <laughs> yeah, nine hundred <laughs> cases. Now that would in- include um, yeah, the range of cases, from the things that go all the way yeah. to the High Court, to minor, relatively minor um, notifications or queries to us, where we can point people in the direction of our FAQ or our briefing note. But yeah, it's 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 vast. It's a torrent still. It's a torrent. Um, despite despite our wins, I, something I talk to you about quite a lot is you know we won you know we got the Maya Full Starter case or there was the Sean Corby case in critical race mm. race theory and I, I ask you Ben I say are you seeing an awareness from employers or an awareness from I know, the NHS that these <coughs> cases are being won um, and these alternative views are allowed and is that embedding down into the employer into the employers that you 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 hear about and and it seems like maybe sometimes but most of the time not really i think with all of these issues because of the equality act and the way it functions there is a sense that reducing discrimination is a good and the more of that good you can get the better and so employers will go all in on uh, reducing discrimination against trans employees they'll go all in on policies about transgender inclusion or equity and anti-racism and so on and for the last three years certainly there has not been very much awareness at all and that really is understating it of the fact that these things when you go beyond what the law requires and you and you keep highlighting and emphasizing these issues and these approaches um that you begin to trespass on the rights of others and that's what the sean corby case and maya forstatter's case established very clearly um, that you cannot, an employer cannot just keep going on these paths, on this path of reducing discrimination without any thought to uh, the fact that such an effort itself will become discriminatory against other groups, other people with protected characteristics under the Equality Act. Um, and so I still think there is a view among the employers and the universities that we're dealing with of, of basically the more anti-racism the more anti-discrimination the more pro-trans policies you can get on your books the better and there is still a lack of thought about what the trade-offs are in that um but 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 that said i mean what what we can do now is point to these legal victories that we and others are racking up and we are able now to equip people if, if you know if somebody comes comes into our inbox looking for help later today be it about trans issues or critical race theory, we can now point them to these things. We can say, well, this is what the Employment Tribunal thinks about this. This aspect of your belief might well be protected. And those things are enough at the least to give an employer pause or to introduce an element of doubt. So I think it is, I think that is starting to trickle through and and our ability to assist people is being increased and enhanced the more of these victories that are being racked up. Um, but there is still this this very primitive view of equality issues that the more the more uh, anti-racism and the more uh, anti-discrimination and so on, the better, without any consideration of people having different perspectives about how to achieve basically the same objective. But I do think this data also gives us confidence um, and our members confidence 
and our partners' confidence. So organizations like Don't Divide Us, for example, who are very closely related, confidence to go out there. Because if we, our confidence being totally undermined with this gaslighting that actually... The, the, the cancel culture doesn't exist. Cancel culture is a myth. Cancel yeah. culture, or at least maybe cancel culture is that classic thing, isn't it? You know, um, oh, maybe cancel culture did exist, but it's on the wane. <laughs> so, yeah. so even those who are late to the party say, oh yeah, maybe, but now it's an, now it's an issue in the rearview mirror. Well, no, we're seeing we're seeing quite the reverse, and our data proves it. We have hard, solid data. Um, I'm not going to invoke the phrase follow the science because that would be utterly hypocritical. Uh, quite the reverse. I want people to challenge me. I want people to look at the data. I want them to come to different conclusions if, if, they, if they think that there are different ways of looking at it. And I want, I want to be corrected where I'm wrong. Um, but this is very compelling. And as an, another really nice little soundbite that we can say is that we're still standing at we win over 70% of our cases when we know what the outcome is. We win over 70%. It's actually 73% of our cases when we know what the outcome is. So, again, huge hope there that if you have a situation where someone's really having their legal free, free speech rights crushed in, in, in whatever way, uh, when, when we look into it and, and, and are able to take it forward, and, and know where the outcome goes, we will win seven out of 10 of them. And that's pretty compelling, I think. And, and certainly those are stories, each one of them, where hopefully we've also made that person feel they've got um, someone to go to, somewhere to go to, and, and we've had a, a sort of effect, not just on them, but their family, their friends, their ability to make, to make um, a living. You know, it's, it's, it has an effect that's not in the data directly. I think, as well, that positive outcome, that 73% is really, really a very, very good statistic. And that achieved in a context where we do not have, for instance, a Freedom of Speech Act protecting workers. We have an act protecting students and academics in England, but there is no Free Speech Act protecting the rights of employees. So even though we're in a basically a pretty hostile legal framework, we've still been able to achieve a situation where 73% of our cases end in a favourable outcome. Which it's I think interesting, actually. About um, 50% of our open cases that are currently open today involve, legal, involve the, the legal team. But that drops a lot to sort of, I think it's 15% of our closed cases. And that, that raised an eyebrow with me. And I thought, how can the, the number of open cases, uh, and there are multiple explanations, open legal cases be 50%, but the closed legal cases is 15%. And, and there is an obvious answer to that. The legal cases stay open for months and months and months and months and months. And so you get a yeah. layer a layer that keeps coming in and staying open and quite rightly because they're complicated and and they're involved um but they're also really important because they will set the next legal precedent it just shows how many um how many we're churning through and closing relatively quickly um because we can resolve it we can give people the confidence to go away and 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 argue their corner um or we can say actually this one isn't worth fighting for these reasons um which we, we sometimes will say as well. We're very practical and pragmatic in what we say to our members. But I think if uh, listeners will not mind me giving a plug for the FSU, all of this for a membership fee beginning at £30 a year. And for that £30 a year, you might find that you're having support from a top solicitor or barrister to fight your corner for you. Um, so it, I, I think that that's, that's the... That's the takeaway from from what you've said, Tom. For me, is is the scale of what's going on, um, and the fact that it's there's so much churn of cancel culture beneath the the, the the sort of peaks in the news of Nigel Farage being debanked and Kathleen Stock and so on. Those cases are hugely important, but there's so much going on at every level of society and all sorts of organizations to people. Yeah. And it's, it's a real cultural change that we're, we're fighting back against and gratified to say we're winning. And this gives us those 
anecdotes. So the, the anecdotes, uh, what do I mean? Anecdote sounds like a trivial word, but what I mean by that is the actually the landmark cases where we can tell a story and we can capture the imagination of a wider audience. Those are really, really important. But we've now got this sort of bulked up data as well that, that fills in the missing parts of that story and says it's not just that compelling individual which, which captures people's imagination and, and makes, makes them realise, goodness me, this could happen to me because that person could be me. Mm-hmm. But we also fill in the gaps and say it absolutely could be you because it's 2,250 cases that, we, that have come to us. Think about the ones that haven't come to us. People do come to us regularly and say, I wish I'd known about the Free Speech Union earlier. I hadn't heard of you. It's only through a friend of a friend of a friend. Um, so we've got to get the word out. And we've got to say, um, you know, we're here, we're here, and we can help, and we we're we're making a difference. Um, so yeah, we don't want to bang our drum too loudly, too too boldly, but the stats are, are compelling. I'm speaking at a conference tomorrow, the Freedom Association conference. On uh, the, the segment I'm speaking on is called "How to Defeat Cancel Culture." So I'll be talking about some of these numbers again tomorrow. Uh, but the organizer said to me that I'm speaking directly after Nigel Farage and directly before David Starkey. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> so You're what I people feel, might call the loo break. Uh, I, yeah, I feel like a, a, thin, a thin spread of margarine between two great big chunks oh, of my Lord. Uh, <laughs> I'm, yeah, here so for, I'm, I'm, I'm here for Ben Jones. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, it'd be interesting to. Uh, it, this has been quite a useful revision for me, actually, Tom. Um, but to be able to go into that conference today, that we've had almost two thousand two hundred and fifty cases, and we've we've won seventy three percent. Well, Ben, I do I do hope that event goes well. I'm only joking. I'm sure that people will will be there uh, and really enjoy. Um, the message that you take and I yeah it's uh, I look forward to hearing hearing from you um, uh, when we're at the battle of ideas uh, this this weekend so I guess a reminder to listeners about the battle of ideas but uh, thank you to everyone for listening did you have anything else to add Ben? No see you there if you're at the battle of ideas or at the freedom association event tomorrow uh, very much looking forward to uh, to both thanks for listening thanks a lot bye bye